So this is lesson 26. Finds us beginning in the beginning of chapter 6. I should say this is lesson 26 of 27. Because we're going to be done in one more week. <laughs> really? <laughs> you wouldn't kid me, would you? <laughs> so... Paul is giving us some practical advice in chapters 5 and chapter 6 in closing the letter. Advice on putting the flesh to death. What should vanish from our lives when, when we do that. Advice on how our lives should look as we walk out the law of God through the Spirit of God. And we have an unfortunate chapter break here that lead many to believe we're beginning a new thought, but that is not the case. You see... It's a continuation of what was said in chapter 5. And if you lose track of that, then you really don't have uh, too much to base chapter 6 on. You get really reading it, it's nothing but gibberish. And with that in mind, I would like to just take a look at what we talked about last week. Remember a couple things from last week before we begin this week. One was the fruit of the Spirit he talked about last week which was almost exactly the same as the attributes of God. If we look in Exodus chapter 34, the fruit of the Spirit was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then in 25 and 26, he said, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And so Paul is adamant about walking in the Spirit, about living in the Spirit. And the Spirit will lead us away from sin. Or as we saw last week, sin is actually transgression of the law. It will lead us away from transgressing the law. The Spirit will lead us away from our flesh, which causes causes us to sin, to violate God's law. And it will lead us in the ways of the Spirit. And in following the Spirit, the Spirit will make us spiritual versus fleshly. Obedient versus rebellious. And so in this regard, Paul told the Romans this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And so he tells the Romans that the law is spiritual. So the spirit will lead you into a spiritual Torah observance. The problem is not the law because the law is spiritual, holy, righteous, and good, as Paul has told us. The problem is our flesh. Paul told us that the law attempted to make us godly, attempted to make us spiritual, but the law failed because, as Paul said, it was weakened by our flesh. The law relied on our flesh to carry it out. The law is spiritual, holy, righteous, and good. It is our flesh that was, is, and always will be our problem. It's the battleground for our lives. Paul is telling us that the Spirit will work in concert with the law to make us spiritual. What it will lead you away from is your flesh. And its desires, which are not spiritual and are contrary to the law. So what we found out last week is the law is spiritual. And uh, um, the spirit is spiritual. 
And they work in concert to make you spiritual. So, chapter 6 now. Boy, I'm getting all these messages on this computer here. I have to keep... Get all these pop-ups coming up. Let's go to chapter 6. And it says, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you may also be tempted. Now, the word here for sin is not the usual word, the the Greek word that's ordinarily used for sin. And most translations don't translate it sin, but fault. I think that we can take this to mean some form of rebellion against God's law or against the community halakha. There are areas of life that are not covered by Torah specifically that while not plainly stated, still violate the principle of the law. I've had people say, well, I don't see that in the Torah, so it must be okay. Well, as a really simple example, the Torah, the Proverbs, and the Messianic writings all teach that we should not be drunkards. We should not be given to much wine. However, they they never say anything about other drugs. Right? Other drugs are not specifically mentioned. But losing control with any substance violates the principle of God's law. There are areas of community life that aren't covered by Torah, particularly in the times that we live. There are always new problems that arise almost daily. And the elders of the community must come to some rulings on these things for the community. Just a really simple example. You might notice that some signs went up this week, really nice looking signs on the doors and such. You see, the Torah doesn't deal with cell phones. There weren't any. Right? And so the elders made a decision that they must be turned off during services. This is a rule or a community law. And if you violate that rule and your cell phone goes off during service, it won't be long before you get a visit. In a spirit of love, an elder will more than likely ask you, is there something In your life right now that's going on that's so important that you you can't spend two hours focusing on God, right? And if you say yes, that's like, well, is there something we can do to help you with that? Granted, that's really simple, a simple matter. But when you start to think of all the specifics that are not covered by Torah, you begin to understand why there must be community standards as well. Why someone must look at the principles of the Torah and come up with decisions for new problems that arise. So Paul says, restore him gently. Be careful that you yourself are not tempted. And the important piece of, I think, in this whole passage is, it says those who are spiritual. Who is that? Well, if you misunderstood the previous chapter and you don't realize the definition, it lies in the word of God. You who are spiritual become something that's nebulous. If we look back to what we learned last week, that would be one who's well versed in the laws of God because the law is spiritual. As Paul said, the law is spiritual. It would mean one who's led of the spirit because as we read last week, The law is weakened by the flesh. And so it would be someone who is led by the Spirit. And we might even rephrase it to those. So we might rephrase it to say those who are led by the Spirit and well-versed in God's Torah. 
And we might add also one who's well-versed in the halakha of the community, who can deal with all of these things with love, kindness, mercy, and the forgiveness of God, and yet while in love would still be firm so as not let the guilty continue in their sin. So I would assume that Paul means elders here and leaders of the community here when he says this. And if we conclude that Paul is a disciple of Yeshua, that's certainly what it means because that's the way Yeshua laid it out in Matthew chapter 18. Then it says, be watchful that you might be tempted. I'm not quite sure what he means there because I've restored many people in kindness and love and I failed to restore many people in my day as well using the same kindness and love. But I was never tempted by their fault. However, with the really stubborn people, I was tempted in other ways. But I was never tempted by their fault. Next, Paul says something that has been misunderstood over the centuries. He says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ, of Messiah. What is the law of Christ? Well, let's look at a few examples of what the commentaries over the centuries have taken this to mean. Matthew Henry is one of the more respected commentaries. He says this about this passage. To excite us hereunto, the apostle adds by way of motive so that we shall not fulfill, so that we shall fulfill the law of Christ. Though as Christians we are freed from the law of Moses, yet we are under the law of Christ. There And therefore, instead of laying unnecessary burdens upon others, as those who urged the observance of Moses' law did, it much more becomes us to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. Well, right away, if you look at this, you think, well, what's, you're still wondering, what is the law of Christ? I mean, in the commentary, he strips away the law of Moses in the life of a believer and replaces it just with the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? It leaves you wondering, what is the law of Christ, right? does me. Here's another commentary. The believer has perfect liberty in Christ and is absolutely dead to the law. And the law is not to be used by him in any way. Liberty we have in Christ is to be used for holiness. When God redeems the curse of the law, it is a redemption unto holiness to live righteous and holy life well what you come up with when you read this is a lot of nothing (laughs) because the words mean nothing without the meaning that the bible gives them he says our liberty is to be used for holiness but without the scriptures without the book of leviticus to tell us what holiness is you define holiness It says a redemption to live a righteous life, but without the scriptures, what is that? What is a righteous life versus a wicked life? Again, without God's Torah and his spirit, you'll never know what that is. He tells us to live a holy life, but without God's law, and but not to use God's law in any way. That, my friend, is not possible. For as Paul says, except for the law, I would not have known what sin was. And again, he says, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Some would say the Spirit will lead you. 
But without the Torah, without the law, you can't even determine what spirit is speaking to you. As an example, you've heard me speak of the minister who left his wife and children because the Spirit of God, he said, told him that he had found a new soulmate. She tells me that the Spirit led him into sin. Guess what? That's ridiculous. You see, without Scripture, how can one even gently correct him? The point I'm trying to make is this. The battle between the flesh and your spirit, the spirit of God needs the spiritual laws of God to keep you on the right path. So without the law, paragraphs like these two are just plain gibberish. Gibberish because holiness, righteousness, sin, wickedness have lost their meaning and have been replaced by your own imagination and in many cases your own selfish justification. And the point is for us that we should be far enough along in our understanding of the book of Galatians to know that these commentaries cannot even be, cannot even be possibly near correct. So what is the law of Messiah? Well, Dunn puts it this way in his commentary on Galatians. You shall fulfill the law of Christ. Almost certainly Paul refers in shorthand the way, shorthand way to the Jesus tradition as indicating how Jesus interpreted the law in his teaching and actions. Isn't it refreshing to find a commentary like Dunn's? The law of Messiah is most certainly the way Yeshua walked out the commands of God, the commands in the Torah, how he interpreted the commands of God. What stood opposed to Yeshua's law or Christ's law or Messiah's law, whatever, his way of walking out the commands of God were the sages and the rabbis. And how they walked out the commands of God. And I'd say they stood opposed to one another because they often differed. If we look to Strong's, we're going to find the definition of Jewish law, what will be later written down and called the Mishnah. And it says this. It's the word paradosis in the Greek. Of the body of precepts, especially ritual, which in the opinion of the latter Jews were orally delivered by Moses and orally transmitted in an unbroken succession to subsequent generations, which precepts both illustrating and expanding on the written law as they did were to be obeyed with equal reverence. And so the rabbis had a code of law that further defined God's law. And it'll be later written down. It's called the Mishnah. Some of those traditions are exactly what Paul is struggling against in Galatians. Specifically, non-Jews must become proselytes to be accepted into the community and in the world to come. He's attempting to replace that law with the law of Messiah, which looks at the plan of God and said, no, non-Jews should remain as they are for reasons that we've already covered in the study and I'm not going to go over again because they take too long. The law of Messiah does not stand opposed to the law of God. Heaven forbid. For if it did, it would show that God is not one. As he tells us he is. It would show us that God has changed. Even though he tells you, I changed not. The law 
of Messiah stands opposed to these additional laws of men, the law of Messiah is a further clarification of the laws of God. An example of that, a really simple example that we've looked at many times. The Torah says, don't commit adultery. Simple command, don't lie with another man's wife. Right? But the law of Messiah ups the ante and tells us God's intention for our lives and tells us what the halakab, those who are in his kingdom, will be. And that is, you don't even look at another man's wife in that way. You see, he takes the law from an act and makes it even a thought. The fact is, Yeshua never argues with against the law of God, but only with the way the law has been interpreted by men. So what is meant here simply by the law of Christ is Yeshua's interpretation of the Torah. And some will say, well, how can that be? Because at that time, there weren't even gospels written down, any gospels to follow. And while we know that there weren't any gospels written down at that time, the sayings and teachings of Yeshua were passed by in an oral tradition. Much the same way the rabbis of the day passed along their traditions, which are now recorded down in the Mishnah. The Mishnah wasn't compiled until after the destruction of the temple and the Bar Kokhba rebellion wasn't finished till about 217 Common Era. Until then, all of those things were passed on orally. And so the Hebrews are well-versed in passing on oral traditions. When Paul says the laws of Messiah, he's referring to this passing down of Yeshua's teachings orally before they were written down. And he's telling us that the law of Messiah is the truth of Torah. And its commands. The most important of which was Yeshua's concern for loving your neighbor. If we look to Yeshua, we're going to find the defining rule and action in his life had to be love for his fellow man, so much so that he gave his life. He passed that rule on to his disciples. And not just that, but the Spirit also instills in us what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. If you read carefully, if you look at the first major decision of the apostles concerning the Gentiles, what do we find? Love. It says, therefore it is my judgment that we trouble, that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. We find love and concern For their neighbor, the non-Jew, turning to God. And we find it repeated in the actions and the words of the disciples. James says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. James calls the command to love your neighbor a royal law. And when he says found in scripture, he's not speaking of Matthew chapter 5 because it wasn't written down yet. So what is he referring to? He's referring to the Torah, Leviticus chapter 19. You see, Yeshua was and Paul were continually defining the full intention and meaning of the Torah. And these words like love that really don't mean nothing and mean anything unless they're defined. Right? 
Think about it. What does love mean? You hear it thrown around all the time. And what you hear thrown around is certainly not what you find love in the scripture to be. Right? If we look at the custom of circumcision of non-Jews in the diaspora, we would see that there's no love in demanding such a thing. If we look at the grief they would be bringing into the lives of these God-fearers by requiring them to either be circumcised or the consequence of that disfellowship, it's not acting in love. Because with either, these poor non-Jews would come under the scrutiny of the Romans. Mutilation of the flesh was a crime. And not just that, they would be alienated from their loved ones. If disfellowshipped and they followed Yeshua without the exemption that the Jewish people had to worship the God of Israel under Roman law, then they would be classified as atheists and subject to death. And we'll see that if you look at history, that's exactly what happened. So again, not acting in love. If the influence were acting in love, they would have said, just like the apostles, we should not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. They would have realized as Peter, can anyone keep these from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Messiah Yeshua. So what we find is that Yeshua's teachings and his attitudes for his fellow man and his walk was passed on to the disciples and they were driven by love for one's neighbor. Now the opposite of following the laws of Messiah would be to follow your own decisions or the decisions of someone else. So Paul says, if anyone thinks he's something to when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions that he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For each one should carry his own load. Paul reverts to the negative here and negative admonition. He says, if you think you're something and your judgment should be followed, then you've forgotten that you are in fact nothing without Messiah. And you deceive yourself. Everyone flesh, everyone's flesh wants to be the big man on campus, right? Right? Everybody wants to be the teacher. Everybody wants to be the leader of this, the leader of that, the big man on campus, right? But in the end, in Yeshua's kingdom, we're all just servants. We're all only servants. And when a servant forgets that he has a master, then he's deceived himself. Listen to what Dunn says about this. Paul himself was familiar with Christians who delight in their experience of the Spirit and assume airs and responsibilities which they were manifestly unfit to discharge. He does not name names, but the attitude of superiority and inflated self-esteem were sufficient common occurrence for Paul to express himself in blunt terms. Oh, that we could get just a few people to understand this. And by a few, I mean everybody. There are times when our overinflated self-esteem becomes so great that we no longer can even live in community. Or our opinions destroy community as it's doing here in Galatia. Show me a division in a community and 99% of the time I'm going to show you an overinflated self-esteem. Someone, he gives us some really great advice here. Some of the greatest advice you can receive, and that is do not compare yourself with somebody else. Right? 
judge yourself and not by the light of somebody else. One of two things can happen when you judge yourself by looking at someone else. And they're both bad. Either you end up feeling superior to the other person and, or you end up feeling inferior to the other person. Right? Comparing your action to others leads you to judge others and legalism. Or the other side, it leads you to be covetous. Paul in verse 6 and 7 says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not marked. Forever, whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And Paul brings up the idea of rewarding the one who studies and then teaches others. Which is, uh, Judaism had a term, and I, I, the term eluded me this week. I couldn't think of it. For those who studied all day rather than work, they were usually wealthy and they were teachers. And if you remember uh, Fiddler on the Roof, if I were a rich man, I'd study the holy writings eight hours a day. Something like that, right? That's what he was referring to. But... They were usually wealthy in their own right. The rulers and the caretakers of the synagogues were paid. But it was frowned upon to benefit from the study of Torah alone. One should also have an occupation. Some of the rabbis spoke quite negatively of taking money for your learning and teaching of Torah. Others, however, spoke of students supporting their teachers. So there was a real, you know, opposite poles here. Paul, it would seem, comes up on the side of a teacher should be supported. Even though Paul often refused compensation but relied on his own occupation. Paul puts it somewhat differently though. He says rather than saying a workman deserves his wage, he speaks of one who should share with the one he learns from. And then says what you sow, you shall also reap. So he's saying if you sow into your teacher, you'll reap from your teacher. You know, in Christian thought, And today, a minister is to be paid, right? Often in the Messianic people, our Messianic movement, people read some of these Jewish traditions regarding not being paid for teaching and try to apply that to their pastor or rabbi. I once had a gal who was astonished. She was quite surprised when she found out I was paid. Well, the fact is, people need to lighten up because you can't always apply a first century tradition or policy to someone today. Just as you can't apply Torah of the first century Israel to someone today. If you don't believe that, try and go out and stone somebody for adultery or something and see what happens to you. Right? The fact is, most pastors and rabbis today do a whole lot more than teach Torah. The synagogues of old had a chazan who was paid, had a ruler who was paid. But as I said, teachers weren't often paid. The rabbis and pastors of today do all of those things. And then some. They are CEOs of a business, a corporation. They are counselors in the community. They they conduct marriages and funerals. They see to the physical needs of the community. They're crisis managers. And on and on and on and on. And I struggled with this years ago. And I have always been the first to tell anybody who asks me, I don't get paid for teaching. I do that because I love Yeshua and I love talking about him. So I don't get paid for the three hours I spend in service here each week. 
If I didn't work for KSS, I would still be here in service and still offer to teach each week because I love to do it. And I also donate all the funds from my teachings on CD, the proceeds from the sales of CDs, to KSS. I don't take any of that. So what do I get paid for? Well, I just get paid for the other 50 or 60 hours that I'm here each week or for being on call for 24 hours a day. The fact is, I felt so strongly about not falling into that trap that I've always donated all the money I receive from teaching anywhere to KSS. I just have them make the check out to KSS if they want to pay me for teaching. The point being, if you try to compare a pastor or a rabbi with the first century model, then you need to give him some credit for everything that he does that the first century rabbi didn't do. Okay, that's a rabbit trail, but I, I felt like I wanted to go down that one today. But he continues with the thought of reaping and sowing in verse 8. He says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from his flesh corruption, and the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so if we state in context here, he's more than likely saying the flesh is not likely to share, and the spiritual man will delight in what he's learned from the teacher and desire to see to the well-being of the teacher so that he can continue to teach, right? But there's a greater truth here. And that is, we are to be witnesses to the world around us. And if we sow in the flesh, that's exactly what we're going to get in return. If we sow in love, in the spirit, that's what we're going to receive in return. And a great example of that, the Bible is full of examples. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, this principle is throughout the word. You could read all of chapter 15 and it goes over the same things. You see, the greater truth here is we're responsible for restoration of ourselves and we do that by following the Spirit of God and putting to death the flesh. And if we do that and we follow the Torah in love as Yeshua did, by the Spirit as Yeshua did, we'll reap eternal life. But understand that there's a little bit more that's going on than just putting your, to death your flesh. We're also responsible to help restore the rest of the world. Amen? One of my favorite sayings is from Perkei Avot. From a rabbi, Tarfon, he says, it is not your responsibility to finish the work of perfecting the world, but neither are you free to abandon it. How do we restore the world? Or as he puts it here, perfect the world. We do it one word at a time, as Proverbs said. One spirit-filled kind word at a time that turns away the wrath of the flesh. One spirit-filled action at a time. One relationship at a time. In all things, seek the good of others, which is what he gets at next. He says, listen, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, that's good. We're supposed to do good. What's good? What is good? You see, words mean nothing unless you define them by Scripture. They mean, they can mean whatever you like them to mean. 
unless you have a definition from Scripture. Who gives us a very good definition from Scripture? Well, Yeshua. He says this in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. He says, Now a man came up to Yeshua and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Yeshua says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So what is good? Obey the commandments. And how do you do that? Through the one who is good. Through the leading of the Spirit of God, which will lead you in the paths of Messiah, or we could say the law of Christ. Amen? Let's bring the team up.